Our sermon this morning is based on Luke chapter 10, a fairly well-known portion of Scripture, and you'll see that as we read it. I invite you to open up your Bibles, Luke 10, 25 through 37. This is on page 1196. There we read the Word of God as follows. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, that's the Lord Jesus Christ, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? What is your reading of it? So he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered rightly. Do this, and you will live. But he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Then Jesus answered and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a certain priest came down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. On the next day, when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said to him, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. So which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And he said, He who showed mercy on him. Then Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. Let's sing after the sermon from him, 79, 1, 4, and 5. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, a couple of weeks ago, if you recall, we had that huge storm, lots of ice. I believe here in Owen Sound, you did not have church services, we didn't either, in Fergus North. I'd be curious what you did on that particular day. We could walk to another friend's uh, household and we listened to a sermon online by Reverend Ian Wildeboer, actually. And it's quite a privilege and joy to be able to do those sorts of things in our day and age. Later on in the, the week that followed, I was at the bank and I was talking to my banker about that day and he said, yeah, what did you do that day? He, he knows that I go to church. He actually knows I'm a preacher. I said to him, yeah, we canceled church services. I didn't get to preach my sermon on the Good Samaritan. Oh, well, you're the Good Samaritan. I, I've heard of that, he said. This fellow doesn't really know anything at all about the Bible, but he knows that. A Good Samaritan. Yeah, you know, somebody who's kind, like a stranger who's kind to somebody. That would be a good sermon. Of course, I had an opportunity to tell him, there's a little bit more to this story 
than just that. This morning, we're not just going to have a very short sermon. Well, the parable of the Good Samaritan. We need to learn to be kind to strangers. There is a lot more going on in this story than that. Christ tells this story for a particular reason. After someone wants to test him, because someone wants to pat himself on the back as well, that he's okay and doing the right thing to get into heaven. Jesus picking a Samaritan as the good guy. See, the fellow I was talking to at the bank, it's amazing that people know what Samaritans are these days. Yeah, they use that word. But I had to sort of explain to him, a good Samaritan. That's the shocking part of this story. That's like the kind Nazi general or the compassionate drug dealer or the merciful, maybe in our circles, the merciful homosexual. That's what Good Samaritan after all meant. Not just a kind stranger, but a strange kindness. When all the good people turned away, there was kindness from someone that you wanted to maybe dismiss and look down on. Someone like Jesus, really. The church father Augustine in the 4th century, is famous for saying, Jesus is the great good Samaritan. And that is totally true. Because Jesus, in a way, He's like a Samaritan. Somebody that at first, well, plenty of people sneered at Him, mocked Him. But a man from Nazareth, isn't He demon-possessed? He was rejected by his own people, his own family. He was crucified on a cross. But God's help has come from a very strange person. In Jesus, we who are left for half dead in the ditch find the mercy of God. So I put the sermon under that theme. Jesus, the good Samaritan. So here in Luke chapter 10, we meet the Lord Jesus Christ in the middle of his earthly ministry. There's crowds following him. He's done a lot of teaching and miracles. There are those that, however, feel threatened by all of this. They sense that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to undermine everything of the Jewish society of the day. So several of the Jewish leaders come to Jesus with questions. Here, a lawyer. Now, this isn't lawyer in our sense of the word lawyer. This is a man who has studied the law of Moses, an expert in religious law. Luke tells us that he stood up and tested Christ. So notice that, for starters, how the Holy Spirit introduces this story here. He stood up to test 
Jesus. He's going to ask a question, but it is a bad question. I know your teachers like to tell you there's no such thing as a bad question. (laughs) There can be bad questions. You see, this man asks a question, but he is not honestly looking for an answer to that question. He doesn't want to learn. He wants to test Jesus. He wants to trap Jesus. And he also wants to come out himself looking good. Those kinds of bad questions still are asked today. And I'm thinking questions like, two people, if they really love each other and are committed to each other, how could that be wrong? How could the Bible written by Human beings thousands of years ago, be reliable. Isn't it a translation of a translation of a translation of a translation? If you are not asking those questions sort of honestly, if you're just asking those questions to push God away, then those are bad questions. If you really are seeking though and do want an answer to those questions they still can be good questions here it's a bad question the man is not really seeking an answer these questions have an agenda and there's two of them of course the first one is this teacher what must i do to inherit eternal life Now that might at first sound like it's a good question, right? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Remember though, he wants to test Jesus. The religious religious expert already has his own answer to this question. He spent his life studying the law of Moses. So when Jesus answers his question with another question, that's entirely fitting. What is written in the law? What is your reading of it? And then the man answers with the two great commandments that sum up the law that we read and heard this morning, that we are to love God and to love our neighbor. Now Christ himself gives this as a summary of the law at one point. It may be that Jesus said this in the presence of this man. He heard this. There's also evidence at this time that other rabbis believed and knew those two commandments. Yeah, they do summarize The law of God. That's what the law of God boils down to. Love. Love for him and love for those around you. So Jesus tells him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But here the man's true colors come out. Does he then want to really get busy with the challenge to love Well, he's so often just like us. He doesn't want that at all. He wanted to justify himself. And so he asked Jesus another question. And who is my neighbor? Now you need to realize that in those days, in the first century, there was a huge debate about that particular question, who is my neighbor? 
That commandment comes from Leviticus chapter 19. But of course, when you look at any part of Scripture, you need to read the context of it, right? That helps you understand it. The context of Leviticus 19 very much is the Israelite society. So the neighbor there is very clearly your fellow Israelite, your fellow believer who's living with you right next door. Perhaps it could also be the foreigner who is settled in your midst. But that would be the, the meaning of neighbor, first of all. Neighbor does not mean anyone and everyone. Doesn't David in Psalm 139 say, Do I not hate those who hate you? Are there not enemies of God? Do they not deserve to be treated as such? Aren't some people who reject God supposed to suffer the consequences of that? I mean, you should let them stew in what they've brought upon themselves. If you, in turn, love them and help them out, aren't you perhaps taking issue with God who may be punishing them for their sins? We need to be careful about who we love. We should make sort of a, an order, a, a kind of priority. First of all, love your family. Love your family who is loving God. Love those close to you. Love your community. Then love those maybe who are farther away with a lesser kind of love. And finally, those who are far from God, they should be far from your love. Now, all this perhaps sounded sort of reasonable. In the end, you can see it really undermines the whole command of God. In the end, all you get is a life where people are comfortable doing what they want to do. Loving those that you want to love. Loving those who love you. That isn't any sort of love at all. In those days, and this was the problem of the Jewish religion at the time, the commands of God turned into self-righteousness. They were very narrowly defined. As if we could keep them perfectly well and we could pat ourselves on the back for doing it. This lawyer then, yeah, he is symptomatic of the whole Jewish religion of the day. He is not interested really in the commands of God. He's not interested in being challenged by them. The command to love, he's far more interested in looking good, being praised, Perhaps in just having a debate about the commands of God rather than doing them. So the response of the Lord Jesus Christ to this so wonderfully wise. He does not specifically answer the man's question, who is my neighbor? He doesn't define the neighbor. He doesn't say, Here's a list of five categories 
that encompass the meaning of neighbor? I mean, then the lawyer could have said, okay, yeah, I'm doing that. Or what about this particular person or this kind of person? You can't love them. You included those who hate God, Jesus. All that sort of debate would leave the fundamental problem in his heart untouched. Instead, Jesus tells him this wonderful story. A man was going down the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. If you know anything about the geography of Israel, that, really, that road is really uh, going down. Jerusalem is up higher, the Dead Sea, of course. Jericho is down by the Dead Sea. It's one of the lowest spots on the earth. This is not a nice highway. This was like sort of going down a mountainside and there's canyon walls and that sort of thing. There's, there's caves, apparently, in the hillsides. Great places for groups of bandits and thieves to hang out. And of course, that is exactly what happens. He falls into the hands of robbers who strip him of everything, wound him, and leave him lying on the side of the road half dead. Now it happened by coincidence, continues Christ, that a priest was also taking that road. The priest had probably just served in the temple in Jerusalem. There were groups of priests that lived by the Dead Sea in in Jericho, so he's going home. When he sees that awful scene, the man half dead there on the side of the road, he steers to the other side and doesn't do a thing for him. Now we're not told exactly why the priest did this. So, in this part, we shouldn't get too carried away here, but I think that we can sort of have fun a little bit with this because, well, if we invent some reasons for the priest, the priest and his avoidance of this, well, That is what we all are very good at, inventing reasons for things. So how about this? The priest, he would have run the risk if he went in and even investigated this man of making himself unclean. Perhaps this man is dead. And if someone is dead as a priest, there there can be exceptions, but generally speaking, You were supposed to avoid contact, even be close to a dead body. And further, what sort of man is he? There's an apocryphal book, the book of Sirach. This priest would have known it. It says, do not go to the help of a sinner. As I mentioned earlier, perhaps God is punishing this man. The priest goes by and does nothing. Then a Levite comes down the road too. He also sees the the man and also passes by on the other side. Perhaps looking down on the road, he saw the priest ahead of him and realized, hmm, well, the, the, the priest hasn't done anything. Who am I to challenge my boss? The priest must have some reason 
I ought not to do something as well. The priest, he was probably riding, riding a donkey. The Levite, he's probably walking. How can I actually help this, this man? Of course, all this I'm telling you is complete conjecture. At any rate, the Levite also does nothing then a Samaritan, taking this road, also comes to the scene. And when he sees the man there half dead, what does it say there? He had compassion. Highlight that. That certainly is a theme here. He had compassion. Passion. The priest, the Levite, so often like religious people, they get busy obeying rules, but compassion, that is far from them. The Samaritan has compassion on the man. Now, as I mentioned at the beginning, this would have been very shocking to hear. Let me sketch just a little bit more about who the Samaritans are so that you understand this. You know the origin of the Samaritans. After the northern tribes of Israel were deported by the Assyrians in the 8th century, the Assyrians took other peoples from elsewhere in their empire, moved them to the northern part of Israel, they mingled and mixed there. The Assyrians were very good at doing this sort of thing. It was a way to sort of squash rebellion against them, control their empire. The Samaritans were a result of this mingling. And you could see it in so many ways. For instance, their Bible. They did have a Bible. But the Samaritan Bible is only the five books of Moses. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's it. Nothing more. And they also modified those five books of Moses. It was modified because the Samaritans wanted to be very independent from Jerusalem. So any sort of hint in the books of Moses about the place that God would choose you know, as His dwelling place, they modified it so very clearly it would not be pointing to Jerusalem, but rather to Samaria. And the rest of the law of Moses too, they also sort of shrugged their shoulders at. They hardly had any sense of all those laws about the clean and the unclean. Eating their food then, sharing utensils with Samaritans was a huge Jewish no-no. They were largely regarded as impure, lazy, when it came to the law of Moses. In fact, they were regarded as heretics. It's one thing to be a complete pagan, but a heretic? That's even worse. They were also great enemies. There was this big rivalry between Jerusalem and then Samaria. About 25 years before these events here in the Gospel of Luke, 
There was a group of Samaritans that went to Jerusalem, scattered human bones in the temple grounds. That was a way of terribly defiling the temple and its grounds. The Jews certainly had not forgotten this. In fact, in the first century, at the synagogue, part of the synagogue service each Sunday was to call down curses upon the Samaritans. But it's a Samaritan who helps out the half-dead man. And look at the help that he gives as well. He binds up his wounds, pours on them his oil and wine. He puts them on his animal. He gets down, walks the rest of the way to Jericho. He brings them to an inn. Inns in those days are generally nasty places. But the Samaritan pays up front for the man so that he can get the care and respect that he uh, needs. He plunks down two denarii. I'm told that that would have been enough to care for the man for two or, or three weeks. If there's more, the Samaritan promises, he will repay the innkeeper when he returns. The Samaritan. Do you see how he has real love? His love has compassion. His love is willing to bear a cost. Let me also add that the Samaritan takes a bit of a risk in bringing this half-dead man to this inn in Jericho. Imagine 150 years ago, let's say, an Indian, a First Nations person, bringing a half-dead white man into a town and saying, he needs help. That Indian might get blamed himself for the white man's injuries. So this Samaritan has another thing that true love has. Not only compassion, but counting the cost, but also courage. Which one, asked the Lord Jesus, was neighbor to the man? The lawyer, the religious expert, well, very reluctantly, it seems, he has no choice but to say, the one who had mercy on him. Did you notice that the lawyer is not even able to pronounce the word Samaritan? Not the Samaritan. He doesn't just say that. He goes for the longer thing, the one who had mercy on him. And then Christ tells him, go and do likewise. All right, in conclusion, let's zoom out here and draw some lessons from this. This parable of Christ is so artfully put together. Notice carefully how it goes. It doesn't say, help out even the Samaritans. You see, if it was like that, you could still look down on some. You would still be able to rank people in need. 
Ah, even if he's a Samaritan, well, he's half dead. I suppose I should do something at any rate. No, it's the Samaritan who has compassion. The Lord Jesus Christ tells this story to speak to the lawyers and his whole Jewish audience's greatest, deepest hatreds. And it challenges them not so much about their love, although it certainly does that. It challenges them about their pride. Do we see that is our real and biggest problem? Christ, at the end of this parable, says to the man, go and do likewise. And then you might think, well, okay, this man can just Learn to love, he will inherit eternal life. As if, sort of, you could do the right thing to get into heaven. But do you see, this man, if he embraced the call and challenge of Jesus, he would have to wrestle with his pride. And in wrestling with his pride, he would also hopefully by the grace of God, come to know His need and come to know His Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Who was the neighbor? Ask Christ. That's a different question than who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? That very question is wrong. That's why it's a bad question. It starts you off on the wrong foot. As if some then maybe may not be your neighbor. The Lord Jesus Christ teaches us to ask a better question. Am I a neighbor? The onus is not on others to prove their claim upon us. We need to learn to be the neighbor. Then also this, the man asks about love. Christ tells a story about compassion. We can define love in a very sort of comfortable way. Where it hardly makes any demands on us. Where love conforms to us and our pride. If you read throughout the Gospel of Luke, hopefully next Sunday in Fergus North, I'm going to preach on the parable of the prodigal son. Well, it's not. Parable of the the two lost sons. That's in Luke chapter 15. Again, it's a parable directed towards the Jewish leaders. And again, it's a parable that challenges them that their hearts, their hearts are so shallow and hard and superficial. The Pharisees really had no idea what love was all about. The kind of love that they needed themselves and the kind of love that they had to show then also to others. 
do we know what love is? Do we know the kind of love that we need so desperately from our God? That we are in great need of compassion and mercy. That we all are lying half dead, helpless at the side of the road. And the religion of the day, the religious experts of the day, are passing us by, not lending any help at all to us. We need a love that costs. We need a love that has great courage and compassion. We need the love of Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ, Augustine, is right. He is the good Samaritan. When no one else is. He has compassion like no other. He is willing to bear a cost like no other. He has courage like no other to do what needs to be done. If you read through the Gospels, well, the other day I was reading a little bit an essay on the emotional life of the Lord Jesus Christ. The emotional life of Christ. What sort of emotions did Christ have? You will discover, if you read through the Gospels, the number one emotion of Christ is this. Compassion. Time and time again, He looks out over the people. He has compassion on them. They are like sheep without a shepherd, helpless and harassed. He has compassion on a, on a woman who has an illness or has been bleeding for years upon years. Compassion filled the life of Jesus Christ. He was broken over our misery and even literally let Himself be broken by it. Let us Go and do likewise. Let us learn to have compassion. Let us learn to be broken over the plight and the misery of those around us. Let us show a love that costs to those that are being passed by by our world around us, to those who need it more than they know. Let us learn to love even if they treat us as they did the Lord Jesus Christ, as a scorned Samaritan. Amen.